And the hard stuff just takes passion and hard work from so many people. And it's so inherently collaborative that I would say, you know, start first in your daily life. From Deergo Collective, this is Responsibly Different. Sharing stories of certified B corporations and our journey of joining them in leveraging business as a force for good. I'll be the first to admit, I know little to nothing about fashion. I do know what is comfortable for me and what performs well in sports and the backcountry and what doesn't. As someone focused on performance of my clothing, I've become the owner of a lot of wool and synthetic clothing over the years. After my conversation with Brian Linton from United by Blue in episode 18, it got me wondering about fabrics and sustainability. So I sought out an expert. Vanessa Barboni Halleck has become an expert in sustainability and the impacts of the fashion industry when she launched the women's clothing brand Another Tomorrow. Her mission is to create a truly sustainable, transparent, and compassionate company with a three pronged approach providing ethically and responsibly made clothing, educating the public on why it's important, and creating a platform for activism to amplify all our voices in demanding a change to how clothing is made. All right. Well, to kick us off, Vanessa, you left your job as managing director at Morgan Stanley to start Another Tomorrow. I'm so curious, what prompted you to leave such a secure and and stable position? (laughs) I'm crazy. No, I'm just kidding. Um, You know, I think that Another Tomorrow is in so many respects, kind of my whole life full circle. And um, you know, finance in and of itself was a bit of an aberration for me. I grew up in these really small, hippie, academic towns in the in the Midwest, and was really excited about you know kind of problem solving at the intersection of disciplines, and ended up in finance and uh, was focused on emerging markets, and you know loved many aspects of it. But I was in search of really putting my energy into something that I felt was really deeply purposeful. I had left in 07 to go do a degree in energy and environmental policy. And, you know, then I went back and I rebuilt these businesses and kind of had a taste of entrepreneurship. Um, and when 2017 came around, I felt stuck, you know, and I felt stuck in terms of uh, sort of like the why behind, you know, getting up every morning. And it wasn't that I, you know, took issue with the job, but it just, um, it, you know, it wasn't the return on my energy that I felt like I was really looking for. And I thought, okay. Um, I had this great mentor and friend, uh, still have this great mentor and friend. Um, and he said, you know, Vanessa, you might sort of feel like you're at your local maxima, but you're not at your global maxima. And that kind of just forced me to think bigger, think differently. And I said, okay, if I zoom out and say, what do I want the next 20 years to be about? I had one clear answer to that. And that was purpose. And, and, and purpose in a way that I thought it was actually going to be able to bring something tangible, um, and meaningful in terms of change to the world based on what I could kind of uniquely deliver. And at the time, I actually thought I would stay in finance and I would just shift gears and focus on, uh, sustainable finance, which I think is super important still. And that led me to take a sabbatical. Uh, and it was on that sabbatical that I really fell down the rabbit hole of just what a hot mess the fashion industry is in ways that I think in, in many respects are, are more complex and opaque than some other industries. And that was just that that was why that was the why behind another tomorrow. 
And I pulled the plug at the end of my sabbatical. And, you know, it's that's been the journey ever since. Oh, my gosh, that's amazing. That is so cool. So tell us, what is uh, Another Tomorrow all about? You know, for us, Another Tomorrow is really about modeling what's possible. So I kind of think about ourselves as like a living, breathing case study. Now, what that practically means in terms of, you know, who we are as a company and how we're positioned. Um, so we're an end-to-end sustainable luxury brand. And I hate the word luxury, but I think it, it connotes quality. So I'm going to use it anyway. Um, and we use technology to fuel transparency, to fuel circular business models. And so we really are here to model a, a different set of possibilities from uh, sourcing to transparency to business model, kind of throwing the kitchen sink at the systemic issues within the apparel industry and, and delivering value for customers in, in, in the meantime. So we think about our customer and the planet as being, you know, core to our mission. That's what drives our, that's what drives us. And, and what are just some of those, because you, you mentioned earlier that you were seeing some of these damaging practices within the fashion industry. What, what were some of those findings? I mean, I guess I'll start with some of the most staggering statistics. And, and actually, the, the one that I always, you know, keeps me up at night is on the social side. So, you know, fewer than 10%, and, and some of the stats are actually even worse, but fewer than 10% of global garment workers earn, earn a living wage. Like That's horrifying. It's some of the lowest wages across every single industry on the planet. And that's that's devastating. And, and I don't think that most people have a real appreciation um, for that. And they're so opaque. You know, this whole explosion of global supply chains meant that, you know, the, the person who's making that garment is just, you know, out of sight, out of mind, and in many cases, intentionally so. So that's certainly true on the on the labor side, human welfare side of the equation. Um, and there are many, you know, issues around, you know, worker safety as well that are really profound and concerning. And, but it's not just that, you know, if you look at the environmental side, certainly there's the waste. So just the business model in and of itself, you know, over half of garments end up in a landfill within the first year, which is just bananas, like crazy town. And, you know, because we moved into these disposable business models and that's just the waste side of the equation. But then you look at, um, you know, you look at uh, pesticides and insecticides in, in uh, the cotton industry. You look at microfibers that come from polyester. You look at the decimation of forests um, through viscose. Viscose is a semi-synthetic fiber, meaning it's made from wood pulp and then is chemically treated to create a semi-synthetic fiber. The manufacturing process uses toxic chemicals and requires the use of a lot of water, leading to air and water pollution, water waste, and because the root fiber is wood, it is a leading contributor to deforestation, which Vanessa will talk more about later in the show. You know, it's, it's highly complex. So really, you know, between animal welfare, human welfare, and environmental welfare, there are just myriad, myriad deep problems. Thinking about some of the ways that Another Tomorrow helps solve some of those problems, I know that you have this really cool... A size exchange program for women's ever-changing bodies. How does that work? Yeah, so this you know this was a cool one, and and um, it came out of just watching customers' behavior, right? So like at that point of purchase, there's just this sense of like anguish. I think a lot of times, and a lot of it comes back to just um, you know the shame that I think culture creates around women's bodies, and there's always this sense of like. Am I going to lose the five pounds? Should I buy it? Should I buy it now? Or like, am I going to lose the five pounds and I should wait? And and there isn't this just kind of acceptance of where you are in the moment. 
And so I thought, you know, how can we take that out of the equation and just say, like, love where you are today? And we thought, all right, well, if we let her just buy for where she is now, and then she can exchange a size if her body changes, then that takes that that stress and that pain out of the equation. And so right now we're just doing it for our, t- our core tailoring product um, because it, it tends to be the most sort of like size restrictive, you know, tailoring is like a little bit more fitted. Um, and initially you can exchange uh, for a different size within the first year. And we expect that as people use the program, um, it will evolve based on, you know, their needs. But it was a really easy way to just pilot it. And I have to say it's really hit a nerve, you know, and, and to be able to see that add value in such like a core emotive way, it's been just really awesome. And it's, it's also great for the environment because then you also don't end up having stuff stuck in your closet you're not wearing, which is, a, which is another issue, you know? So, um, you know, the amount of clothing that's like actually being worn is, is a fairly small percentage of what's actually being bought. So that's, uh, that's how the size exchange program works. That's so cool. And I, I'm curious to that end too, why is it so hard for brands to create the sizes that women need? Oh my gosh. I mean, that is a big, big, big question. Um, a lot of it, I think, and it, you have this entire industry that's basically built on an architecture of this sample size, what you kind of, what's called like a sample size that is more or less a size U.S. size two, maybe four, believe it or not. And the whole kind of industry is sort of architected around that. And so you're kind of just starting from a pretty terrible place to begin with. And that makes it really hard. And on top of that, you know, you have a whole infrastructure of makers who know how to do things in that traditional way. And like anything beyond that is like layers of cost, right? So it's like layers of cost in an industry that is like all about like the least possible cost. And so it just creates these barriers um, that I think you just have to be really intentional to, to break. And, you know, I'll be really candid. It's something that we've struggled with, you know, and like we produce in very traditional manufacturing uh, countries, you know, Italy predominantly. And like, there is a certain way of doing things (laughs) and it's, it's, it's tricky, but I think that, you know, that's kind of like the basic, um, semi BS, like, you know, systemic answer. But the truth is there's also, there just needs to be a heck of a lot more, human responsive technology also in the industry. Cause I think that it's been an industry that's been very much about like, Oh, if we build it, they will come. Right. As opposed to saying, let's really think about primarily how we can deliver value for our customer. And when you have that mindset, that customer centric mindset, then you say, Oh, if I'm going to deliver value for her, then I need to deliver her a product that works for her body. And it just completely shifts I think the orientation. And so I think it's that orientation shift that's really required. And then technology to be able to do that efficiently. That makes a lot of sense. I'm I'm curious, are there are there steps that you're taking at another tomorrow to kind of help kind of break down some of those barriers and what does that work look like? Yeah, so for us, um, you know, a lot of it is, you know, making sure that we have the full extended size range. And for what that means practically is that for a given style, you have multiple different patterns that you grade off of. 
Um, so we started that work uh, early in the pandemic, and then we basically put that on hold. And we're going to be having, we'll have that for fall of 2022, which we're really excited about. So it's extending that size range up to US 22 or 24. So we're, we're psyched about that. Um, but we're also really looking into different fit technologies that can help women understand when they're shopping. And so much of it now happens online. How can they find things um, that are going to resonate with their with their body type from from the outside and take a lot of the guesswork out of it? So, you know, it's it's a combination of things. But, you know, like like all change, it's about putting in the work. Uh, now, there was this term that I came across and I, I'm going to own I'm, I'm somebody who definitely struggles in the fashion department. Uh, so this was a new term to me. I'm curious if you can kind of unpack it for us. But fast fashion. Uh, can you talk to us a, a bit about what fast fashion is and its impact on the environment? Yeah, no, fast fashion is the devil, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it's, uh, look, I mean, fast fashion came about, um, there have been some really interesting business school case studies around some of the big fast fashion brands and sort of what they set out to do. But, um, you know, really, it was about creating like disposable fashion, right? So it's like, how do we say, oh, look at this whole universe of disposable consumer goods, Right. How can we make fashion, you know, something that's like as easy as buying like a Big Mac, right? Um, where you consume it and then you're done and then you buy another one. And so that's really kind of what fast fashion is about. And it's really about, um, you know, where they've innovated is they've figured out how can we be super, super demand responsive to what the customer wants and bring things to market really, really fast, right? Um but doing so means you're also generally doing that really, really cheaply. And unfortunately, part of doing that really, really cheaply is also paying people very, very little. So really how it's affected the environment is, um, you know, the amount of clothing has dramatically outpaced um, population growth many, many times over. So the advent of fast fashion meant that we started to produce way, way, way more clothing than, than the population growth even implied. And like I mentioned, the majority of that's ending up in a landfill within a year. So it's it's just it's hugely wasteful in terms of what's actually being dumped in a landfill. But just you think about all of those resources that are also being used, you know, whether that's the cotton or whether that's um, the logistics or what have you. I mean, it's an immense amount of resource that's basically just being utilized and dumped. And a ton of fast fashion also um, happens to be made from polyester. Which then again gets back into the microfibers issue, where you know polyester is responsible for about a third of microfibers in the oceans. Wow, I had no idea. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And what is is that from washing the polyester? Or is that washing. from the manufacturing yeah. process? Yeah, it's it's from it's predominantly from washing from washing the clothes. So yeah, check those labels. Um, and that's, you know, and that's true, whether it's virgin polyester or recycled polyester, everyone loves to talk about recycled polyester these days, but if you're washing it, it really doesn't matter, you know, that from a microfiber standpoint. So it's a, it's a, it's a big issue. Wow. That is definitely good to know. Um, speaking of materials, another tomorrow uses organic linen, tensile, and some recycled polyester buttons, how do these materials affect the earth and the clothes that they go into? Yeah. So, you know, we, at the outset, I think when you're starting a sustainable company, you've got to figure out like, what's your framework? What are your filters? You know? And, and so for us, um, it was 
setting up those filters at the outset, you know, certainly paying living wages, which doesn't specifically answer your question, um, but also uh, making sure that we weren't using any animals that necessitate or any materials that necessitated killing the animal or harming the animal. And then utilizing uh, natural uh, fibers uh, that were solely organic um, or, you know, were responsibly sourced from a forestry standpoint. And so the organic piece of the equation means that none of the natural materials that we source, so the linens that comes from flax or the cotton, utilizes um, uh, chemical insecticides or pesticides. And that is really important both for biodiversity as well as human health, and even the way that carbon is sequestered in soil. And so, you know, fairly technical, but um, just to give you an idea, you know, cotton utilizes, I think it's like four, four-ish percent of global agricultural land. But if you look at it, insecticides and pesticides, in certain cases, it's like 25% of the global total. So like massive chemical load, really, really massive. And some of those are toxic nerve agents. Like they literally <laughs> will cause like developmental damage in children or um, even, you know, in their unborn mothers or in like in farming populations. And you can imagine what that does to local ecosystems, right? So that's a huge, huge issue. Uh, the Tencel piece and the FSE certified viscose piece all goes back to like the forestry management and making sure you're not taking anything from ancient and endangered forests. They're all, you know, forests that are responsibly managed. And then, you know, the devil's also in the details. So, you know, it seems kind of maybe ridiculous to talk about, you know, buttons, but, you know, little things like that also matter. And so it's making sure that, you know, we try and uh, source, you know, recycled zippers and recycled poly buttons, and we're not using horn buttons and things of that nature. So it's in the details. It's in the details. But in, in, its, in its total, it really it matters a lot. And the details add up, too. They really add up. They really, really add up. So let's talk, I feel like we touched on this a little bit, but let's talk a little bit about the the fashion industry in terms of its impact on, on the earth directly. Are, what are, what are some of those maybe things that folks don't know about? Yeah, I think, you know, a couple of the things, um, I'll, I'll give you sort of some of my top surprises <laughs> perhaps. So, um, you know, I mentioned obviously the chemicals piece for natural fibers, you know, I mentioned the microfibers piece. I think those are really, you know, biggies. Um, in terms of cellulosic fibers, so that just means like fibers that come from a pulp. Um, somewhere on the order of 150 million trees are logged just for cellulosic fibers for, you know, clothing and textiles. And it's still a significant portion of those come from ancient and endangered forests. Um, and that is a huge driver of ecosystem loss as well as climate change. So that's a biggie that people I think don't really know about. And then, you know, talking a little bit um, still on the animal welfare side, um, I think two of the things that really surprised me, one, so down, with the exception of eider down, which is this down that like naturally falls off the goose, which is extremely rare and ex exceptionally expensive, to, to get down, you have to either kill or live pluck the animal, which is like horrible. So like down, not a good scene. Um, even like responsible down, it just means that they're not live plucking them, they're killing them. So like that's the down thing. Silk, kind of the same thing. Um, little did I know that the way you get a really nice, um, beautiful silk filament yarn is um, boiling uh, silkworms by like the thousands alive. So like that's all. <laughs> so that's also kind of shocking. So, you know, feel free to edit this out. But, you know, two fun facts that I think I definitely did not know coming into this. 
And then you say, okay, well, we're not going to use those things and you got to find replacements. That's awesome. And I, and I think that it's, it, I think people will appreciate hearing that. I know my face, I have no poker face. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, obviously <laughs> listeners can't see my face right now, but I'm just like, wow, you know, I have no idea. Um, it's so wild. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's part of it too, right? Is that education piece is people can't make changes in their habits if they don't know their habits are, are damaging, right? Absolutely. I think I'm a big believer that people behave according to their level of awareness, right? And and there just have been very, very few people who've been incentivized to talk about this stuff. And, you know, it's hard, it's hard information to come by. That's awesome. So talking, speaking of responsibility and shifting a little bit over to B Corp land, how did you first hear about B Corp certification and what kind of prompted you to to pursue it? Oh, that's a good question. I'm trying to think about when I first learned about it. I've, I've known about B Corp for a really long time. Um, and I've been pretty obsessed about it. I was obsessed about it before the company even started because I think maybe just coming from my finance background, I love structures that create alignment um, and clarity. And I think that uh, B Corp is amazing because it really creates this architecture for accountability, which is something I talk about a lot. And it makes it crystal clear for all stakeholders and parties at the table what we're out to accomplish, right? So if that's like investors in a brand or if that's like suppliers in the brand or customers in the brand, like it just creates this incredible alignment. Um, and I have seen how many really strongly purpose-driven companies have sort of gone awry, sort of by accident. Um, and a lot of it is because there wasn't sort of this container of enforcement, you know, and this container of alignment. And so I loved the idea of going the direction of B Corp right at the outset. Was there anything that you, so being a big fan of B Corp before starting the process, was there anything that was surprising when you went through the B Impact Assessment? Yeah, you know, I think it's it's super helpful even just from like a company governance standpoint you know when you're it's this is my first rodeo starting a company you know so there are plenty of things that um that you don't know and so i think there there certainly there were some just some internal governance pieces that were just so helpful that i thought were great and it also really helped us to think differently about our responsibility in our local community because so much of the sourcing that we do and the manufacturing that we do is global and we put so much emphasis on our supply chains. And a lot of the B Corp assessment does focus on, you know, how you're impacting your immediate community around your headquarters. And that really helped to raise a bunch of questions for us to think about how can we be more intentional about giving back like right where we're sitting. And that's something that um, that informed one of our philanthropic partnerships. It's also informed um, part of our production strategy going forward around how we can create more jobs locally um, at a living wage level. So that was, that was really cool. That was really cool. That's awesome. What was, what, what would you say was the biggest challenge of working through the B impact assessment? You know, I think for us, uh, it wasn't too bad because of the transparency piece of the equation. So, so much of the data that they ask for, we already had at our fingertips. I think if we hadn't had the really detailed transparency approach to the business, it would have been a tremendous amount of work, honestly, because you really have to deliver on the details. But luckily we we kind of already did the work. <laughs> we kind of did the work for other purposes first. Um, so it, it really wasn't um it really wasn't too bad. But I think you know you've got to have your ducks in a row in terms of like 
being able to prove what you say you're doing. Absolutely. What, what, what um, has been most rewarding coming out of that, out of your certification? I think it's really been the community. You know, it's a super engaged community, which is totally amazing. Um, and I think that was, I don't want to say surprising, but we didn't necessarily know that going in. And that's been really, really wonderful. Um, so I've loved that. And, and also I think it's, it's a really tangible way for us to, to help move the rest of the industry forward, right? Because everything that you and I just talked about, they're, they're fairly specific issues, but here's an architecture to say, Hey, you guys can do this too. And and we know that bringing people into the fold, once you're in that umbrella, once you're in the B Corp world, um, you're kind of only going to get better, <laughs> you know, and that awareness level is only going to rise. And so I think it's been a really tangible way for us to also, you know, demonstrate you know, where companies can move toward to who are serious about change. And I think there's a tremendous amount of Intent, good intention in the industry. And sometimes they just don't know where to start. And we can say, hey, here's a place to start. Even if you don't finish the assessment now, like here's a place for you to start. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a great launch pad, I feel like, for folks. Awesome launch pad. Yeah. And now another tomorrow, speaking of transparency, provides transparency on the life cycle of your clothing through a unique QR code. What should folks expect when they go ahead and, and scan that QR code? Yeah. So, you know, there, there are many different intentions about this, but one of them was, you know, how can we create connection back to the source, right? How can we reconnect with where our clothing comes from? And so when you scan the QR code and every single garment gets its own totally unique digital identity, um, you can see where it's sourced, um, in many cases, all the way back to the farm. So like our wool all comes from these two family farms in Tasmania. So when you scan it, you're going to see a picture of the sheep <laughs> and you will see every single step that takes place, you know, from the shearing of the sheep onward that goes into the construction of that garment and why we've made those choices, right? So like all the questions that you were asking around, well, how does it impact the, you know, the planet or how does it impact, you know, people, we spell that out and make that concrete. And so, you know, it's, it's an exciting little rabbit hole for the curious. And ultimately that same QR code will also be used uh, to authenticate the product for resale. So that's been a big issue in this whole secondhand market is there's tons of fraudulent stuff out there. We are building out owning our own resale channel. So when you decide to send that blazer back to us, you don't need it anymore. Your size has changed, what have you. We can scan it. We know that it's ours. You know, we can verify that it's ours. So it really serves those dual purposes of transparency and authenticity. That's so cool. So is it is the QR code actually sewn right into the garment? Oh, yeah. It's in the it's on the care content label. Oh, way yeah, cool. It's just, you know. And now everyone with COVID like totally knows which we used to have to, I mean, used to the six weeks before COVID when we launched, um, really have to explain it. But now everyone knows what to do with a QR code. Um, so it's super cool. And we, we see the data. I mean, people scan it like crazy, which is really cool. That is so cool. That is really, really cool. And advocacy and regulation seems to be rooted in everything that you do at Another Tomorrow. Yeah. From preserving British Columbia's old growth forest to supporting humane sheep farming. I'd love to hear more about some of these issues and how it impacts the fashion industry and how you got involved with all of them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as much as we exist to model change, I think that regulation is absolutely critical 
to drive it at scale. You know, we need the bar to be higher and higher and higher so that all companies have to at least meet it. And, you know, I think that there's so much conversation around um, the power of individuals as consumers as opposed to citizens. And so we really like to think about, you know, how can we be citizens first? So that's what the advocacy piece is about. But in terms of the practical piece of, you know, how it connects back to the fashion industry, so the British Columbia old growth forest, the connection there is what I talked about in terms of viscose, right? So that is what we learned about, you know, how many trees are logged, including ancient endangered forests for the purposes of viscose and um, British Columbia's old growth forest. I mean, it's, it's actually one of very, I think there are only three temperate rainforests in the world and it's one of them. And there are basically trees you know, the width of your living room and the height of the Empire State Building that are being chopped down like daily. I mean, it's just absolutely devastating. So, and these are, this is a huge, this is one of the world's largest carbon sinks also. So, you know, while we're talking about green energy, you know, we're really kind of like shooting ourselves in the foot. So that's that one. Um, also, there's another one um, that we did around uh, banning the pesticide chlorpyrifos, which is one of those, you know, really toxic organophosphate pesticides that's used on cotton. It's also used on food um, here in the States and it's used globally. So that again connects back to the fashion industry. Banning that is hugely important for biodiversity and human health. Um, and then we've got others up there that also deal with animal welfare around some fairly esoteric issues in the wool industry called mulesine. So, you know, if you want to go down that rabbit hole, it is there for you. <laughs> This definition might be a bit harder to hear, but I'm sharing it with you because I believe the more informed we all are, the better decisions we will make. Mulesing is when sheep farmers remove this strip of skin around the buttocks region of the sheep to prevent parasitic infection from the buildup of feces or waste. However, the open wounds can also get infected and in some cases can lead to a prolonged and painful death. And we have another one um, around, uh, you know, bringing fair wages to um, garment workers in California, because unfortunately, even in this country, and people are super proud of the Made in USA label, we have got some ugly stuff happening um, in our garment factories. Oh, wow. So just because it says Made in the USA does not mean that folks were paid well for their labor. Oh, no. Nope, I am afraid not. But, you know, the really great thing is that we can all be a big part of this change, you know, and I think that, you know, legislators just need to know that we give a damn, right? So, you know, that's what it's there for. Is is there legislation happening right now that folks should know about and be contacting their legislators about? Yeah. Just a quick note, Vanessa and I recorded this conversation on June 4th, 2021. To my knowledge, many of these named Issues are still very active, and I will have links to where you can learn more on another tomorrow's website in the show notes at responsiblydifferent.com. Yeah, so so the so uh, several several different things. So um, on the so SB sixty two is the bill that's currently going through the legislature in California. That's a really big one. Um, so that's going to be coming up for a final vote probably later this month. So really suggest people. Um, look for that one. The uh, issue around old growth forests in British Columbia is a very live issue in Canada right now. Um, and there's a huge amount of pressure on the government to actually follow their own recommendations <laughs> and ban the logging of these old growth forests. So that's happening right now. And actually, even chlorpyrifos, there was just a court ruling 
that the EPA has to ban it for all food uses, I think in the next 60 days, which doesn't cover cotton. But all of these are super live issues. And, you know, the more people put their voices behind them, um, the more likely we're going to see, you know, really tangible, lasting change. Is there a spot on Another Tomorrow's website or anything like that where people can find like yeah. maybe what's happening locally in their area that they can get involved with? Uh, you know, we don't go down to uh, the local level everywhere, but I will say, you know, if you go to the magazine section of our site and you look at our petitions, every single one of these um, has systemic impacts, right? So I think that if you look at, for example, even if you don't live in California, if you push to support a bill like this, you know, California usually sets standards more broadly. Same thing for like this old growth forest issue in Canada. It might look really specific, but actually it's a template for how other countries handle their issues. So everything that we pick is, um, while it might be locally specific, it is definitely globally, um, you know, systemic in nature. So, you know, whether it's in your backyard or not, it's going to have an impact. That makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, now, I know we've talked about a, a, a myriad of different issues in the fashion industry from social to environmental. If you had to pick one, what would you say is the biggest issue that needs to be addressed in the fashion industry? Overproduction. Um, I, you know, it's kind of funny, but coming into fashion from finance, it is the most inherently speculative industry I've ever seen. It's completely bananas. You know, so you have this situation where people make a whole bunch of stuff that they have no idea if anybody actually wants or will buy. So I think that um, you know, it needs to be much more demand responsive and we have got to change the culture away from fast fashion so that people look at clothing as something they want to invest in and keep. But long story short, I mean, all of these things that we talked about matter, but we just need to make a whole heck of a lot less clothing, just way, way less. And it needs to be higher quality. And it, you know, people need to be able to pay, get paid a living wage doing it. That makes all the sense. That's awesome. Um, now, Vanessa, you're also on the board of the Accountability Council and the advisory boards for the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard Kennedy School and the Trust for Public Land. And you run Another Tomorrow. I mean, <laughs> how do you do all this? Like, when do you find time to sleep? Um Okay. So the truth is I actually don't sleep very much. Um, I should sleep a lot more. Um, <laughs> I wake up kind of best case scenario, 4.30 in the morning, which is, you know, so don't, please don't follow my lead in that regard. But I, you know, I'm, I'm just somebody who has always had just a ton of different interests and scratching those itches kind of continuously is what makes me happy and keeps me going. I start to get really restless doing kind of one thing at a time. And, you know, that's a blessing and it's a curse. And the, you know, the upshot of that is I definitely don't sleep enough. Any advice for, for folks that maybe uh, are also looking to create change and build a business on all of these things? Like any, any words of wisdom for those folks following in your footsteps? <sighs> yeah. You know, I, I think that um, I think people underappreciate how important it also is to be a change maker and an advocate inside of larger organizations as well. Like, I don't think that entrepreneurship is like uniformly the answer. You know, I think that it's incredible. It's empowering. It's, you know, a lot of great things. And, and I think that, you know, if you feel inclined that way, then, 
you know, find some good mentors and people you can start asking questions to, to, you know, kick the tires and, and put some uh, plans in place that you can kind of stress test with, with various people. So I think just, just start, I think is, is a good thing to say, but I also, um, I think we have such like a hero culture in this country where it's all about like, Oh, you know, this one person is going to save the world or this one person is, you know, going to create um, this company that's going to change it all. And, and the hard stuff, just takes passion and hard work from so many people. And it's so inherently collaborative that I would say, you know, start first in your daily life, whether that's like at home or with your family or in the company that you work for or what, you know, the organization you work with, there's so much um, that can happen at, at all levels and in all facets. And and so I, I, I just... I shouldn't say this as an entrepreneur, but I really think that it's a little, it can be a little bit glorified, this sort of like individual pursuit. Whereas I really think where we are in this world is we need everybody doing it no matter what they're doing. Well said, well said. I'm curious, what can, what can fashion forward eco-conscious consumers, how can, how can folks shop more sustainably? Let's say that. I love this question because I think the answer is ask lots of questions. Brands pay tons of attention to the questions that customers ask, and they are notoriously opaque. And so if I always say when it comes to clothing, if you want to really simplify it and you want to ask one question, I say, ask the brand, could be over social media, could be over an email, what have you. You know, it's not about brand shaming. Just ask the question, was the person who made this garment paid a living wage? Now, Based on the statistics, the answer to that question is probably no, or they may not know, but asking the question is incredibly powerful. And normally what I find is that the brands that care about making sure that they manufacture ethically usually also care about their impact on the planet. And just being asked these questions really encourages companies to look more deeply. So I always say start there. You know, everything else that I talked about, you know, buy organic, like definitely please buy organic and try not to buy polyester. And like, if you buy polyester, like, please have it be something that you're probably not throwing in the wash or buy a guppy bag or what have you. A guppy bag is a synthetic bag you can use to wash your synthetic clothing, of which I have learned since recording this episode that I own a lot of. You fill the bag half full with your synthetic garments, think polyester, acrylic, spandex, lycra, etc., and wash in the washing machine with liquid soap. The bag catches the plastic microfibers, preventing them from getting into our waterways. It also extends the life of your clothing by reducing the amount of fibers shed by protecting the garments in the washing process. A double win. I recently picked up a guppy bag at our local Patagonia shop in Freeport. I'll put a link in the show notes to where you can order yours. But if you can ask only one question, it's was the person who made this, you know, garment or widget or whatever, were they paid a living wage? It's a pretty clear cut yes or no answer. I think that's so great, too, because whenever I think about sustainable shopping and consumerism, I just think, well, buy less. Right. Or or vote. You know, I think a big campaign that um, B-Labs did around B Corps was vote with your dollars, right? Like pay for the stuff that you want. But yep. to your point, if companies aren't hearing that feedback or getting those questions, I, I never thought about that, getting those questions, maybe they're not thinking about that either. Totally. And it's, and this is the, it's the thorniest one is the, is the living wage question because it, it hits right at the bottom line. So people really need to know that the customer cares. That's awesome. 
what should we be on the lookout for for when we're shopping? I mean, what what should we avoid? So definitely polyester sounds like polyester's out. Yeah, I would say avoid avoid polyester if you're buying natural materials. Um, you know, really organic is is far better. I do think buying secondhand is hugely important. So you know, if you could buy secondhand first, like that's great. Um, you know, I would say look out for like the marketing messages that just talk about sustainability without substance. If you see a brand that talks about sustainability and there's nothing detailed on their site, not great, you know, and, and support B Corps, right? Like I think that, you know, generally, um, you know, all of this stuff is really complex and like you shouldn't have to have a PhD in the subject to go shopping, you know, it's just complete brain damage. But if you, um, you know, look for people who are willing to do the work around B Corp, it really matters. Um, it demonstrates a commitment and that doesn't mean that they're perfect, but it's a fairly good indicator that they mean it. Um, so yeah, like, you know, look for substance. It's also, I feel like a great place to start. Like it's a great, it's a great place to start. To your point, it doesn't mean that they're perfect, but it does mean that there's like some level there that you can trust. Yes. Which is great. Yeah. Any final thoughts you want to share with listeners Any or anything I didn't touch on that you want to touch on? No, we talked about so much. It was really, uh, it was really exciting. Um, you know, I would just say, you know, we want to hear from you, you know, so if what we talked about resonated, then, you know, come find us, you know, we're obviously on Instagram at another tomorrow or on the web at uh, another tomorrow.co and on Twitter and all the like, but, you know, we really deeply want to hear about what you care about, what, you know, people individually care about, what they find confusing you know, where we can be of service um, because, you know, the world is constantly evolving. And I think that that's where we've really tried to evolve ourselves. So I'll, I'll be happy to close, close there and just say, you know, we're curious and, and we want to hear from people. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. To learn more about Another Tomorrow and for additional information, you can visit the show notes at responsiblydifferent.com. And next time on Responsibly Different, you will hear a bonus episode on Saturday, July 3rd, as we mark our one-year anniversary of the show and celebrate our interdependence. Then back to our regularly scheduled programming with conversation about B Corps and benefit corporations with Bernstein Sure attorney Helen Sterling Coburn and conscious capitalism leader Tara Jenkins. Till next time, be responsibly different. This is a production of Deergo Collective. Claire Clausen is our project manager, Jeremy Glass is our writer. The music is an original score by our very own Kevin Oates, and I, Ben Marine, am your host and editor. To learn more about Deergo Collective, visit deergocollective.com.